magic lies within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. G'day everyone and welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I am your host Warwick Schiller and about a month or so ago I was contacted by a horseman in Texas who has a podcast and the podcast is kind of about mindset and he wanted me wanted me to be a guest on the uh, podcast which I agreed to do and then uh, before the podcast happened I was chatting to this guy on the phone one day and he said oh and I've got this other guy that helps me compare the podcast and he's Australian I thought oh well that'd be fun another Aussie you know and then he said yeah he's an Australian that he came came to the US fighting in the UFC so the you know mixed martial arts in the UFC and I was thinking Oh, no, that's not going to work very well. I mean, you know, what do some meathead, aggressive Australian, you know, fighter and I have in common? Uh, But when I actually went on that podcast and was a guest on there, I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, Not only was this guy a UFC fighter, but he's he's a horseman, he's a saddler, he's a farrier. And funnily enough, he'd watched quite a few of my videos and was really into the whole connection thing with horses, which just blew me away. And uh, what it really made me realize is that there's probably a bit more to this guy than just the fighting thing. So I thought I might want to get him on my podcast. So today, my very, very special guest is Brendan O'Reilly. And if you're thinking, I'm not sure I want to listen to this guy on a podcast, let me tell you that you know, he, I'll give a bit of the, the, the game away before you listen to the podcast, but he didn't really get into the, the mixed martial arts because he likes to fight. He got into the mixed martial arts because he thought it, he looked at it as a test of himself. And, and, you know, this is the journey on podcast. And this guy has been on a lifelong journey to, uh, really know himself and test himself. So, uh, yeah, Fascinating conversation. I hope you uh, like this conversation as much as I do. Brandon O'Reilly, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Thanks, Warwick. It's good to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Hey, I've just been uh, looking through your Instagram here, and I just want to read out a quote that you put up. I'm not sure when it was, but this is a quote from somebody because it's in inverted commas. It says, but not all men seek rest and peace. Some are born with the spirit of the storm in their blood. And then you say, every day I'm grateful for the adventurous life I've had and I'm still leading. We are the sum of the situations we encounter and how we handle them. Don't hide from the hard shit. Character will take you places money can't. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a good way to start the whole thing. So, yeah, we want to dig into some of these adventures you had. You have had. So, like me, you're an Aussie boy, grew up in Australia, now live in the US. Yep, that's right, Yeah. What brought you to the U.S. in the first place? Uh, so when I first began uh, coming over to the to the states, Warwick, it was uh, I was competing in mixed martial arts. So uh, some people don't know what mixed martial arts is. They know it probably more. Uh, they may know it as cage fighting, uh, but it's one of the fastest, if not the fastest, growing sport in the world. And uh, and I was uh, lucky to to get to the 
top level of it to you know, to fight in a company called the UFC, which is the pinnacle of the sport. And uh, so that brought me over to the US because obviously a, a majority of their fights are over here in the US. Um, so that's when I first started coming over. Um, and uh, after one of my fights, I was just sort of having some downtime uh, traveling with a buddy uh, who is uh, a professional saddle bronc rider. And, uh, and during that time, I, uh, long story short, I uh, fell in love and uh, ended up now I'm married to an American. And uh, yeah, so that's what keeps me, that's what's kept me in the States. So yeah, it's a, that was a long story short. Yep. You just got married recently, didn't you? Yes, very yeah, recently. Congratulations. Like, thank you. Yeah, a couple of, it was about two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So are you still here on a, some sort of a sporting visa? Uh, not anymore. I'm uh, I'm uh, here like legit now. So I, uh, you know, I was originally back in the day on a uh, sporting visa, like an athlete visa, and yep. then uh, on a business visa where I, you know, I was able to do business, but you're not working, but you can, you know, like work on business stuff basically for Australia. And uh, now um, being married, yeah, I'm on like a, you know, I'm a resident or whatever. So have you got a green card yet? Yeah, got it in the mail the other day. So. Oh, so you've been you've been through all those interviews and stuff because oh, I remember yeah. I remember when Robin and I got married uh, and we went in for the. I think maybe maybe it was after I got the green card. Maybe you go in for how long is yours for? To, how long do you get? Oh, that so one for? I've got a. Uh, it's a conditional one. So basically, yep. uh, it's like for two years we have to continue to collect, provide evidence that it's yep. a real relationship. You know, it's yep. not just. Uh, yeah, I'm not just. And being an actor, and, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. If anyone uh, like people who know me know how bad my acting ability is, so I'd have to be going above and beyond to pull that off because I'm not very good. <laughs> yeah, you know, when we went in for that interview, I think it might be the one at the end of the first green card. Mm-hmm. But you know, they, it's just like in the movies. They ask it, you know, what side of the bed do they sleep on? What colors their toothbrush? How do they have their coffee in the morning? All that sort yeah. of stuff. So that's not just in the movies. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, and it's so funny because, yeah, you start under the pressure, you can start sort of second guessing yourself. And then you think, am I sound, do I sound, do I sound like I'm telling the truth? And <laughs> right. like, I'm like, why, why are you overthinking this? Like, you're in a real relationship. And, you th- and uh, yeah, it's, I guess it gets so built up, uh, you know, people make such a big deal of it that you kind of might think it's a big deal too. But in the end, it's like, man, they're going to, they get good at their job too and their job's seeing if something's real or not. So, yeah, I wasn't too worried. Funny stuff. So yeah. you, uh, you're a bit of a renaissance man. You're a bit of, you, you know, you sh- you're a saddler, you shoe horses, mm-hmm. you coach mixed martial arts. Mm-hmm. Um, you do a bit of everything. But let's uh, what I really want to talk about is this martial arts thing because mm-hmm. you are like a, like a Marcus Aurelius, like you, like you quote, uh, Maya Angelou and, and uh, uh, C.S. Lewis on your on your Instagram. You know that's uh-huh. it's you're kind of like the warrior philosopher, uh-huh. dude. And I, I really want to I don't know pull that to pieces and figure out how does one get to be that way? Because it's it's you know it's not something I you, you tend to run into the 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 mental outlook you have and the and the and the things you've done and especially getting to the upper level of 
you know, what you've done in your life. So I, I got on your Wikipedia. You have a Wikipedia page. You might be the first podcast guest who's ever had a Wikipedia page, which oh, made yes. you easy to research. But it, said, it says here you started training for martial arts in 2008 and you had your pro MMA debut in 2009. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was actually, it might have even been uh, closer, closer together than that. Um, away, yeah, it would have been the end of 08 I started training and started by 09 I had a pro fight. It was like, it wasn't that, it was a, a handful of months that I was training properly. Uh, and yeah, I, so I'd been boxing uh, a few years, um, just traditional boxing through high school and was in high school rodeo, competing in high school rodeo in Saddlebronk. And, yep. um, and I just had that, uh, like a mentality of, uh, wanting to enter, you know, going back to that quote that you brought up at the start, like wa- I, I, just wanting to enter the storm, you know, metaphorically and just, and find out what I was made of. And I think that's more was the drive than the sport. You know, I wasn't so attracted to just the, the sport necessarily. I didn't even know what it was um, until someone showed me a, ta- a, a, deep, a burnt DVD of some fights and uh, then said, you can have one of these fights. There's some coming up in like a couple of months. And I said, yeah, I'll do it. But um, it was just that like wanting to put myself into the – in there uh, and just – see not so much like see what happened like i was just rolling the dice like i wanted to see if i could control myself and my energy uh and my emotions enough to to do well and uh and then you know i did at that level and then i kept progressing and kept improving and and uh yeah so that was really the journey that i was on really was like it was it was kind of a self-discovery and uh and yeah, training at the same time, like training my mind was mainly why I was doing it. Yeah. So what got you into the boxing? Cause you don't, you, you know, you've got this, to me, you've got this pretty cool laid back sort of energy and you don't come across as your typical aggro bloke sort of thing, you know? And, and so yeah. how did, how'd you get into the boxing? Uh, yeah. Boxing again was just, it was, uh, I just wanted to, uh, I always, so growing up since I was little, uh, my dad would tell me always stories. Like my dad would tell uh, me bedtime stories. He still is the king of bedtime stories. He tells them to my, uh, my nephews, my little nephews now, but, uh, but they were always, I, in hindsight, there was always like a consistent theme of like a, uh, like I guess essentially almost like a warrior on a journey, but it was never just like, it was always like a warrior poet or like a warrior philosopher. It wasn't just it, it, the guy did always in his stories and sometimes he'd just make them up and sometimes they were re- true stories, um, but they always were that, that mix. And so I guess subconsciously that guy was always what I wanted to be. And, uh, and you know, another quote that I uh, I live by and i like to you know tell young guys that i'm coaching is it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war and um and you know i think it's uh so um yeah i mean like so much of especially in modern society we everything's set up now that you know like if you you can source a good education um 
things that, you know, there's, there's great stuff set up about that around that, but there's almost like a, uh, especially these days, like in recent years, it's almost like taboo to be a warrior now. Um, and, uh, because people you're in one, you, you either have to be in one box or the other, you know, and, uh, that's kind of what society is trying to push people towards is like, if you're a warrior, then you aren't a scholar. Um, and you, you know, aren't an academic and you can't have feelings either, you know? And, uh, and so I just kind of, I guess, always, uh, idolized. And even if they, it wasn't a real person, even if they didn't exist, the idea of a guy that could be that a warrior that could still empathize with people and, uh, talk to people on an intellectual level as well, you know? And I guess, um, and I guess because I was so, uh, interested in that I just followed that path myself so I you know just started after school I would uh, go into a boxing gym in um, Fortitude Valley in Brisbane which is like a pretty notoriously like uh, was a pretty tough area and uh, and this gym that I went to has produced like some really good um, boxes and I just was lucky to be a young kid in there around them and I just you know, we just watch them and try and absorb it and that sort of thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about that whole, um, you know, the way society is these days. Last year I went to a, um, uh, a men's emotional resilience retreat and that was something they talked about there was, you know, that, yeah, you're either one or the other, and these days it's not cool to be the warrior sort of thing. But something you said then a minute ago made me think, I just read a book recently called Dopamine Nation, and I listened to a podcast today by a, a neuroscientist from Stanford University about dopamine, and he was, you know, there's, if you have no dopamine, you have depression, and, there's, you know, there's an epidemic of depression these mm-hmm. days, and he's, he's talking about your, your set point for your dopamine. You know, you have spikes of dopamine, but you have a set point that you come back to, and your Basically, your dopamine is relative to your pain. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you only have good stuff, if you have a uh, no stress in your life, and you know everything's good, and you have good food all the time, and you get to do what you know, like you're on social media, and and the dopamine's just gone ping, 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 ping. After a while, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. What resets it is is pain, is hardship, is mm-hmm. things like that, and I've for few years now I've been um, taking ice baths, you know, I got into that Wim Hof stuff mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah. Wim Hof kind of calls it rewilding, you know, you, you're resetting your body back to what it was meant to be able to withstand. Yeah. And they took, in this book, they talked about, uh, one of the things they talked about was ice baths and what it, they've done studies with people like with, you know, with, and drawn blood on them before they have the ice bath, during the ice bath, after the ice bath, and they, they test their adrenaline, norepinephrine, norepinephrine which is, it turns into adrenaline. Uh, serotonin, dopamine, all that stuff. And the ice baths are really good for dopamine production because mm-hmm. it stresses the body. And I can imagine um, what you've been doing for a long time. You, I bet your dopamine reset point's pretty good. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I, I'm not sure if it, if it was naturally, you know, it's like the chicken or the egg, you know, like if, if it was naturally, which allowed me to do okay in that world. Or if I if I um, uh, learned it and built up a tolerance, I'm sure there's a little bit of both. Um, but definitely, 
putting myself in those stressful environments, uh, it I think it's yeah. I mean, you can I it's so invaluable, and I tell that to people that I coach. I, I mean, I literally told it to people an hour ago uh, at the gym there that there's so much more uh, to to the training, whether you're doing ice baths or whether you're training Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, than what you're actually doing. You know, people. On a surface level, if you're doing jiu-jitsu, they see the jiu-jitsu. But what they don't see is the mental the mental toughness and the uh, ability to think under pressure. And same as in a, you know, when you, I know I've done some ice baths before and all you're thinking about when you start doing them is like breathing, is, is, is like trying to control your breathing and you don't, you're not thinking about anything else. And it's kind of like the most pure form of meditation that you can get. And, uh, and, and in a with a fight, uh, you basically once you're experienced, you achieve that same state of when you're sitting in an ice bath, only thinking about breathing. You're you're doing that same thing in the middle of a fight. So what some people, what majority of the people in the world see as the most chaotic and scary thing, you're almost in a state of meditation as you're moving through it, and. Uh, for me, that's a really powerful skill because then other things in life seem, you know, like you, they, they're slow, they're happening slow. And so when people think that, uh, that I'm pretty relaxed and, and uh, you know, laid back, it's, that's, I, that's a big reason why is because you can, I've, I've kind of trained myself to be able to slow everything down in the middle of chaos, um, which goes back to, you mentioned Marcus Aurelius before and, uh, that's something he he would say is you know uh, it's not necessarily like the Zen mentality of trying to go find somewhere nice and quiet and uh, and meditate there. It's like being able to find that state in the middle of chaos. And uh, how do we do that? You know. So I think that's a journey. Well, that's a journey I'm on all the time, and I think a lot of us are on it um, or, or want to be on it. You know, I think a lot of people would benefit from being able to try and find that. I find peace in the middle of chaos. You know, um, I didn't mention before, I said you're a Renaissance man and you're a saddler and a farrier, but you also train horses too. And, and mm -hmm. you know, I help a lot of people with their horses. And a lot of times they're people who may not have not a lot of horse experience or have had some accidents with their horses and they, you know, they have some concern around their horses. And it's kind of the same thing, even though it doesn't have to necessarily be chaos, but you know, around a, you know, a large farm animal that could run over the top of you. And, and it probably has in the past. Yeah. Having people slow things down and just be present and, mm. you know, just slow themselves down is yeah. what slows the, the, you know, the whole situation down. Yeah, exactly. Um, I couldn't agree more, you know, like I, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, I, uh, am lucky enough to train a few horses and, uh, have worked with some really good horsemen and, uh, I don't ever claim or imagine to be a, a, a great horse trainer in the sense of a single discipline uh, and, you know, like uh, as far as like cutting goes or reining or anything like that. But where I've done well and excelled is in that sense where I'm working with people, um, just building that relationship with their horse and teaching them like that step one is to control their energy um, and, 
And then you can start to see that, like build that relationship with your horse because, you know, you can see whether that horse is looking for a leader, which a lot of them are. And uh, if you don't trust yourself, then, then it's really hard for the horse to give you that trust. And, um, and I, once people start to grasp that concept and, and really take ownership of their energy, they start to see the changes, you know. And, uh, and I say that to, to, to some of the young fighters. Uh, I would love to get them out working with horses more because it's honestly so close. Uh, you're, you're, you're in a – I mean, especially if you're in a cage, it's essentially a round pen, and you're just trying to uh, control your energy to the point where it can influence the other individual's energy that's in there with you. Um, it's just when you're working with a horse, you're trying to get in sync with them usually, you know, and, and work towards that. And when you're in there with an opponent as a fighter, you're trying to find that, you're trying to get in sync only to break that rhythm, you know, but it's, uh, they're really both really similar, you know? So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of parallels there. Yeah, you just did the whole warrior philosopher thing there because there's a friend of ours that lives oh, not far from here and she's a psychologist and she does equine-assisted therapy mm -hmm. and she has a, a thing now, it's called the circle up experience. She calls it natural humanship, but she says there's, there's four things you've got to have in any relationship. And the first one is you have to, what, you have to know what's going on with you. Number mm -hmm. one is what's going on with you. Number two is what's going on with them. Number three is what's going on between the two of you. And number four is what's going on in the environment. And most people around their horses are not aware of number one mm -hmm. or number three. They're very aware of what their horse is doing and they're very aware of, you know, what's causing their horse to do that in the environment. But yeah, but uh, yeah, it's funny. Here I'm talking to a mixed martial arts guy and he's saying the same thing, our friend who does, who's a psychologist and does equine assisted therapy, same thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's there's so and it uh, and then like it bleeds out into normal life too, you know, your relationships and your interactions with other people, you know, other humans, whether it's in a business meeting or anything like that. Like you said, like most people aren't aware of their energy and what it's influencing around them, and then the interaction of that energy with other people, or whether it's with their horse or or that sort of thing. Um, and I always say that whether it's someone. Uh, that I coach in mixed martial arts saying that they're having some trouble with, you know, I can't escape this position or, or whether it's someone with a horse that's similarly having like an issue, I just check in that they're aware of, like, are you even aware of, is there, is there something you're doing that could be causing that? Because uh, sometimes, sometimes it's not, sometimes it isn't, but usually, we all know usually it is, you know, it's usually us first. So, yeah, once people, it's a pretty, I mean, it's simple, but it can take a bit of like, it can be a hard pill to swallow, especially, you know, like um, once you give up that, once you give up that control of thinking that like you're always, I don't know, in, in the right or not even in the right, but in control, it's hard to admit that maybe I'm not as in control of my emotions as I thought I was, you know. And um, once you do that and start being more aware of it, things start to really, things start to happen that are pretty cool. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's where things go from a, dis, from a sport to a discipline. Mm -hmm. You know, the, you know the, 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 the discipline is, you know, it, it carries over to everyday life and, and kind of fundamentally changes who you are. If you, if you get into it in, in, the, 
you know, you get deep enough into it. You know, some people might get into mixed martial arts because they want to, they want to fight or they want to be able to protect themselves in a scuffle or whatever. And mm-hmm. some people, you know, they want to take their horse for a trial ride and that's what they want to do. And after a while, then they run into some problems and they, you know, they work on a bit more and you get further and further into it. And at some point in time, it stops being about the horse and starts being about the yourself and your journey. And, and it's interesting. You came at this mixed martial arts from the the other end, you came mm-hmm. at it, you knew it was a, you knew it was a journey, you knew it was a test of who you are before you started it. And that's, I think that's a fascinating thing about you. Hey, your dad sounds like pretty cool, dude. Like, yeah, you know, imp- yeah. imprinting that into you, uh, that earlier on. Did mm-hmm. he, did he box or anything like that? No, he didn't. He, uh, he, my dad was just, uh, man, he's just like a really interesting, uh, very like, Really smart guy, um, but like really socially good too. Just like a not just the the nicest person I've ever met, you know. But but when he has to be uh, really strong or firm, he is as well, you know. And that just, obviously growing up, I just saw it. I just I guess I just thought it was normal. Uh, yeah, so I I guess I thought it was. Uh, normal you know like and then as i've got older and now seen um you know other other guys now as an as an adult i realized yeah he was pretty special my dad but yeah he was more into he was in like the army reserve in in australia and uh into like military history and a lot of the stuff he used to talk to me about um was uh yeah like military tactical stuff and stuff about like great generals and uh, history and that sort of thing so i think that was a huge influence on me as well fascinating stuff so you you um got into the mixed martial arts and then you got into a tv show called it was a tv show wasn't it? the mm-hmm. ultimate yep. fight yep. so you're in uh what was it called it was called i've got it written down here uh Ultimate Fighter Nations, and it was Canada versus Australia. Tell us about that. Yep. How did you? What made you decide to want to get into that? And how did you get selected to to be in? Because you went into like a house, didn't you? Like Big Brother yep. sort of a house. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So basically, the uh, it was it's it it is still now actually, it, but it was one of the main recruiting tools, I guess, for the UFC, the company, the UFC, to recruit new talent into the company. They would either be out with they would either have like sort of scouts looking for new fighters or you could enter through this uh show called the ultimate fighter and uh and basically i got invited to the tryouts for it um they were doing like you said an australian team versus a canadian team for they do different seasons and this particular season was going to be australia versus canada um uh, I got invited to the tryout, so I think about four hundred or five hundred guys went. Uh, got sent, we got invited and turned up to the tryouts, and then we basically went through an elimination process um, over about a week. the The initial tryout was like a week, I think, and then uh, and then they deliberated on it for a little while longer and picked the team. But it went from. Uh, it went from the original 400 or so down to eight. They picked eight guys from Australia and eight guys from Canada. Um, and so I was really uh, blessed to, to make the Australian team. And, 
Yeah, basically it was like a big mansion in Quebec, in the country out in Quebec. Uh, like you said, the, kind of like the Big Brother house where there's cameras everywhere. It's like Big Brother, except every guy is a uh, professional fighter. <laughs> and uh, it was uh, it was an interesting dynamic because every guy um, where he came from uh, was like the alpha male. And then, you know, so suddenly you put 16 of those guys who was the alpha male where he comes from into one house and they just coexist. So, and then we had no TV, no phones, no radio. Um, and uh, yeah, I had a I had a blast. I had a great time. Some of the guys, uh, understandably, they had family. They had like a wife and kids and stuff. So it was a lot tougher for those guys. But at the time I was young and uh, single and uh, yeah, I was living pretty lean uh, back in Australia. So, but, so living in a mansion, um, <laughs> getting to train all day with world-class guys, I thought that I didn't want to leave. I remember when the filming ended, I asked if I could just stay, stay on in the mansion, <laughs> but they told me to get out. So, and yeah. so where did, that, where did that thing air? Uh, it aired like worldwide. So yep. it was on, uh, I think it was on, it was on Fox in Australia. I think Fox in America as well. And uh, I'm not sure where else, but yeah, you can still find it. You can find it around uh, the, the web somewhere, but I've got a pretty bad, like think times were tough back then for me. So I was cutting my own hair and yeah, things are, <laughs> things are pretty bad. So if anyone stumbles across photos of that period, yeah, don't judge my haircut. I did it myself. Uh, and I was also the self-appointed barber in the house too because, uh, yeah, we didn't we didn't have like – they didn't – just to add, I guess, some spice to the show, they're like, yeah, no haircuts. If you want to cut your own hair, you can. Uh, so I just became the self-appointed barber and was doing all the haircuts in the house and uh, it was a good old time, yeah. And how long were you in the house? Uh, we were there for – it was originally meant to be, I think, eight weeks – and uh, there was a couple of – there was uh, – it was in the middle of winter in Quebec, so I think there was some filming, like, hang-ups because of the snow and whatnot. So we ended up being there for about 10 weeks, I think. So, yeah, it was, it was good. I loved it. And so where did your uh, mixed martial arts career go from there? So after the show – so basically the premise of the show is uh, if you – advance through the rounds um so week to week there's a fight you know so on tv every week in the house they pick a guy off each team to fight each other and you advance through and advance through and advance through and the premise of the show is the winner of the show gets a con contract with the ufc um but the ufc also uses it to kind of like uh see who they who what talent they might want in the company and could be an asset anyway you know and uh I uh, didn't win the show. Uh, that's a spoiler alert. Um, so, uh, but I, you know, trained really hard. Basically, um, I lost my fight in the house. And after that, at that point, I was like, well, it's not like you don't get kicked off and sent home. You, you're there anyway, right? Um, so I thought, well, you know, some you see in part. I've seen in past seasons some guys mope around and you know don't put in any effort because they know that they they lost. You know, and I was like, I could you could be that guy or I could be here with world class coaches and world class training partners and 
get the most out of it I can. So I still go home better, you know, and that's what I did. I just took the opportunity and just went, yeah, just went at it super hard um, and loved every second of it and trained as hard as I could in every session. And, uh, and I guess um, they were happy enough with that. Uh, so I didn't get a contract straight out of it. I went back to Australia and um, was training for another fight in a different organization. And then an opportunity opened up and they offered me a fight. So that would be my, you know, my um, opportunity to start with the company, basically. They, they offered me a co- contract and, uh, yeah, I took it. So for me, it was one of my favorite lessons uh, in life in general of just of like, uh, you know, you can see something as a, as a roadblock or a stepping stone and, um, and just finding the silver lining in it and just doing that and taking the, you know, taking whatever opportunity was there it's it still opened a door for me, which which went on to change the rest of my life, really. So, yeah. So, in my research, it says you fought in Japan and China as well. What was that like? Yeah, um, they were both pretty cool. J- definitely, Japan uh, was super interesting. Um, I was lucky enough to fight both fight there and take uh, fighters that I trained over to Japan to, and I coached them there. Uh, as they fought there so i got to see it as a fighter and a coach and uh japan is i mean it's almost like the spiritual home of of martial arts it's got such a such a um deep history of martial arts and and like the warrior culture there with the samurai and everything uh, and even more than that it's kind of ingrained in their culture to the point where they the everyday people are Got a moth here, a rogue moth. I got him. Uh, uh, everyday people, the public, really respect uh, martial arts and fighters to a to a crazy level. I mean, they just revere uh, fighters there, just the general public. So that was pretty cool coming from a country where, um, like back back then, it, mixed martial arts was still a real fringe sport, almost an underground sport in Australia. Um, so you were almost, almost, I wouldn't say an outcast, but you know, people didn't accept it. If you said, oh, I'm an athlete and you told them what it was, they'd be like, you're not an athlete. You're like a, some sort of, it's like human cockfighting. Um, whereas in Japan, you get to Japan and those, they, uh, just love, love the fighters and respected and that. So just being, um, being able to be in that country and just see, why they respect it as well and the funny thing with japan as opposed to the us or australia or most of the rest of the world to be honest um where we look at you know wins so everyone wants to know what's your record you know how many what's your how many wins how many losses and japan do not care they care about how hard you fight in the fight that's all they care about they don't, you know, so they would they would rather a guy lose and go out on his shield, so to speak, than, um, you know, just have a lot of easy wins. Um, and that's what one thing I loved about being in Japan and loved about the Japanese culture of respecting that warrior spirit. Yeah. And what about your trip to China? Was that cool? Yeah, it was really different. I mean, I fought in Macau, which is uh, – which is an island off off of Hong Kong, but it's, right, yep. it's a Chinese it's Chinese 
ran, owned, I guess. Um, and it's, man, yeah, it was quite different uh, because it was originally Macau was like a Portuguese colony and is now Chinese. So it's got this weird mix of um, like cult- culture there. Um, I, I enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely different. I mean, I was, I don't know if this is right, but I heard that like the casino that I fought in, um, has turns over maybe more money than like all of Las Vegas put together in a day. Uh, just a huge amount of, um, of gambling, uh, goes on there, uh, which is, it's just, uh, yeah, it was, it was very different. Uh, aside from the actual fighting, it was more so just the, as a, uh, a social study because uh, it's obviously a part of China, which is like this, this uh, weird, weird mix of, you know, it's still, I guess, you know, like a, a communist country, but it's also got this um, huge, there's a huge amount of like capitalism as in as well because you know we see all the stuff that's like made in china and that's obviously generating a lot of money so it was definitely just an interesting interesting place to to be uh aside from even just the fighting so i was lucky to be there with one of my longtime training partners and mentors and uh, we just kind of cruised around (laughs) cruised around uh the island just on an adventure and we got stuck in a buddhist temple i think it was a buddhist i think it was a buddhist temple but it was on some celebration where they were setting off fireworks in the temple and we didn't know. And we were in there when they went off. And this was the day before the fight. So I nearly died of smoke inhalation the day before the fight. So, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, a good adventure. So then you end up fighting in Las Vegas, Nevada. I mean, yeah. that's like, that's got to be like the the pinnacle of your chosen discipline to yeah. fight in Las Vegas. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was um, obviously, yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it was great. It was amazing. And it's one of those things that I can always look back on and be like, man, like I made it. You know, if, if I, if I would have told the, an 18-year-old Brendan that I would be fighting in Las Vegas in the, in the premier, you know, mixed martial arts company, uh, in the world, I, I, yeah, I honestly just wouldn't have, wouldn't have believed it, which is weird because I always believed in myself. You know what I mean? It's, it's hard to say I wouldn't have believed it, but it just, everything seemed, all I would ever thought about was today. Like I want to get better today. And then the next day I wanted to get better that day. So I kind of never thought that far ahead to even dream of it. Like I honestly didn't dream of getting there because I only ever thought about right now and then you know the next day i think about right now so i couldn't i couldn't really say it was a dream come true because i never really dared to dream that far ahead you know but um once but in hindsight it's one of the coolest things um and you know they talk about you hear people talk about regrets and uh and like i don't really have any uh regrets so to speak but if i like one thing I always tell young guys, uh, whether they're in the fight game or I've had some buddies that have like qualified for the NFR, and uh, and I say like I don't I, I don't want to give them unsolicited advice, you know, but I kind of just wish someone had said it to me before I fought in Las Vegas, and it's just like when you get there, just take a moment to like take a 
take a deep breath and and just let it all sink in and in and enjoy it like enjoy the fact that you even just got there and and uh and i don't think i did that when i was there so i remember just looking out of my window in a nice really nice hotel room that i couldn't have afford, afforded to stay at myself you know that the ufc obviously put me up in and uh and i just man i could have been in wagga wagga australia you know like i it it didn't matter to me because all i was thinking about was the fight you know and what i had to do to win and all that and uh which you know um yeah you carry a pretty big burden as an athlete and um and that sort of thing but i just yeah i probably if i had if i could change one thing or if i could just have a chance to do that again all i would do would just be to breathe it in and uh and enjoy the feeling of just being there and and just leave the feeling of what i had to do to win give it five minutes you know and just let it soak in but the good thing is i do that now and if i'm ever in a situation that's you know kind of cool and uh and i think you know that's one a memory that i'm going to have later in life to look to a fond memory i just take a minute to just let it sink in and just and just be grateful for that moment and not worry about the result you know so yeah what i might do now is you know all my if you haven't listened to the podcast before i send my guests uh, 20 questions that I actually stole from Tim Ferriss's Tribe of Mentors book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have them choose, you know, five to four to seven of the questions that they'd like to answer. And so I might ask you some of the questions here. And I'm going to start out, well, I think this is one of the early ones in the in the question thing. What book do you recommend most? Oh, yeah. So a book that I, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend it to a lot of people or to everyone. I mean, like, People are probably sick of me telling them to read this book, but uh, it's called The Alchemist, and uh, I don't know if you've read it or okay, yeah. And I just uh, man, I've read it a ton. My friend actually gave gave me the copy and uh, his copy, and I'm not sure if he wanted it back, but he hasn't got it back yet. But it's travelled the world with me. I mean, it's been around to a bunch of countries, and I'm very uh, uh, like. I'll always go back and read it. If something, if I'm just in a funny point in life and all, you know, I just find it hard to make a decision on something or whatever, I just start reading that book again. And uh, it's just, for me, it's got a ton of answers in it. But what I love the most is it's not trying to give you the answers. It's, it's given, it's uh, reminding you of like a journey, the journey that you might be on and let helping you find the answers for yourself. And that's why I like it. And that's why I recommend it to to my friends because, um, yeah, I just I've never been quite into those books where it's where the person who wrote it is trying to give you the answer because they're trying to give you a different answer to the next guy who wrote a book, you know. Whereas I just find the Alchemist, it's like it it is a guide to help you find your answers. So that's why I really enjoy it. Yeah. Okay, there you have it. There's the warrior philosopher right there, the mixed martial arts guy reading The Alchemist. That's that's worth the price of admission right there. I think that's so cool. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, next question. What uh, what's the most? And you may we may have already gone through this, but what's the most worthwhile thing you've done in your put your time into something that has changed the course of your life? 
Oh man, it's it. It's hard to say if there's one thing for me because um, so there's so many little things that I think have uh, have helped, you know. But I would say as a as a umbrella thing because I could say you know like martial arts, you know, but or but then a lot of the similar things I got from working with horses or young horses especially. But I would say getting comfortable being uncomfortable is the one thing is what i developed pretty young and deliberately i put myself in those situations to learn and that has shaped my life for the better and opened a lot of doors for me and uh will continue to as well because uh yeah just i think it's a great skill is being you know get comfortable being uncomfortable um and then you can just operate on a level where a lot of people aren't ready to. So that's definitely, that's, that's it for me, I think, yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of late to the party on that one. I, you know, in the last probably four or five years, I kind of realized I've kind of taken the easy path through life. You know, I got to obstacles and I went around, you know, went somewhere different than into the obstacle. And it's, I've got to this point and I'm, I'm going all right. So it wasn't yeah, all bad. Yeah. But it wasn't all bad, but there's something, I think this was missing from my life, but there's something missing from your life if you haven't got comfortable with being uncomfortable. And so that's the, you know, the cold showers and the ice baths and yeah. things that I, I, um, yeah, things that I, I, I find a little uncomfortable. And I've never, I've always been, you know, I hated being cold. I've never liked being cold. I've damn sure never liked cold water. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I found that, um, yeah, that getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and, and, you know, reading stuff lately, it kind of pops up everywhere in, in like centuries old philosophies and things like that. Yeah. 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 It's, I think it's a secret that like people that have achieved great things have sort of known for, yeah, like you said, centuries, probably millennia, millennia, but, uh, it's such a, and I think, and that's a risk with in the world with the world these days is everything is becoming so instant and so easy you know and uh that's great sometimes you know like uh but and that's why i think we have to seek it i mean a couple a few hundred years ago you didn't have to seek it out because life was just hard right <laughs> so you know they weren't having to go to the gym and put themselves under stress or do ice baths because they probably just got really cold in winter <laughs> but um but yeah, nowadays, because life is so convenient, I think it's important for people to maintain that skill because it's, yeah, it's a skill and uh, and it, it's kind of scary if we lose that as, as human beings, I think, hey, that ability to to know how far we can push ourselves. And you hear of, like I used to be really um, obsessed, again, with like some stories my dad would tell me like growing up of like the selection courses of uh, – the SAS or, you know, special forces around the world and um, not yet their selection, but then also like some of the, the feats of endurance they did on missions and uh, and so much of that and relating back to their selection was they put them through that in selection to remind them they can do it so that they can draw on it years later in a, on a mission if they have to. And, uh, and, uh, you, you hear examples of them doing that where they might be 
you know, years later, they might not be as fit as they were when they got into that, you know, the special forces or whatever, but they draw on that knowledge that they could push that far from their selection. And it's always there, you know, and I think that is uh, where no matter how you do it, whether it's ice bars, martial arts or anything like that, um, once you know you can push to a level, your body, you know, your fitness might not be there and, and, and that sort of thing, but you know it's like a familiar place now. You know you can survive there, so it's okay to go back there. Um, and I think that's important that people kind of learn to go to that place. And um, so it's pretty cool. I, I enjoy seeing that ice bars and stuff are really starting to catch on. Wim Hof's doing some really good work in spreading the word of that, and he's a cool guy. So uh, that's uh, it's awesome because I think it's the more people in the world that, that remember that we can survive in that those uncomfortable places, I think it's going to benefit the world. Yeah, you know, it's I you know I mentioned before about you know the epidemic of um, depression and stuff, and yeah, it's fascinating that that book I was talking about just really made me think, huh? This is why we have all this depression these days. You didn't have it in years past you know because life wasn't easy then so you had mm -hmm. the you had the hard times you had the good times you had the hard times you had the good times i mean you know we, we don't get that sort of stress on our body and i really think it's not you know being comfortable with being uncomfortable is not it's probably going to be different for everybody yeah because it might not just be physical discomfort it might be uh you know it might be showing your emotions yeah it yeah. might be public speaking it might be and if anybody's ever done any of those things like not shared your emotions for a long time and then start to share those emotions you get more comfortable with it and it's i imagine you would have seen the movie fight club yeah i have yeah uh you know that the guy edward norton gets addicted to going to alcoholics anonymous meetings um you know all sorts of support groups because you get to sit there in front of a bunch of strangers and spill your guts and cry and, and, yeah. and, and share those emotions. And he, and he ends up being, uh, he, he has a, you know, a different, a different one each night of the week. And he goes to all these things because there's something cathartic about getting that, that stuff out of you. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, man. Yeah. If people, that's yeah. I just couldn't recommend enough if people uh, have a fear or a, something that makes them uncomfortable to kind of lean into it a bit, you know, and and go to it, go at it, and uh, only good things come from it. I mean, in the moment, it's it can be terrifying, but after it, you get that rush of of like an accomplishment, you know, that's it's bigger than an external accomplishment too. Like it's not like you're winning a trophy or anything, but it's more powerful than that because like, you know, it's like your soul knows you did something that it wasn't sure it could do, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an, in, in, it's an intrinsic motivation, not an extrinsic motivation. It's yeah, not. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome yeah. stuff. Okay. So this next question, I knew you'd pick this, but everybody that I've had on the podcast has chosen this question. I think this yeah. is the only question that everybody has chosen. And you've probably talked about this already, but what is your relationship like with fear? Yeah, my relationship with fear. Um, I uh, obviously have like fears like we all do. Um, 
my I guess my relationship with it, yeah, since I was pretty young, has been to like push push into it and go go at it, um, go towards it, and kind of learn, yeah, just learn more about it. Um, you know, it, it's it's a funny thing like uh, fear and fear and bravery to me. And same as like violence and uh, violence and like peace, they're they're like really closely linked. I mean, they're, they're like sit they sit side by side. It's like they're like holding hands, so to speak, you know. And it's funny, uh, people, I think that don't get to know that their fear uh, intimately enough. They think that it's something that's in a far off place. It's like the boogeyman out in the woods, you know. Uh, when really it's just it, it, if you get to know it and, and spend time there, it becomes, you know, like uh, it might still kind of scare you, but you understand it's like a, it's like a person that you, you get to know. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, so I've just, my relationship with it has always been to like push into it and go towards my fear. And then, um, yeah, it just sort of ends up not being a fear anymore or at least it's one that I know well enough it's like a friend that might be a little bit volatile, but uh, if you know them well enough, you know how to handle them, you know, or a horse, you know, a horse that might be a, have a few little quirks. But if you know, and I, I have a horse like that <laughs> back home that like I, I love her and can love doing a day's work on her, but for some people might not, um, just that one of those personalities. But it's if you spend enough time there, uh, you 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 get comfortable there. So yeah, that's been my uh, re- relationship with fear is go towards it and get, and understand understand the fear. Why is it that I'm scared? Uh, and um, spend some time there with it. And yeah, that's that's it. Awesome stuff. That's kind of what I thought you'd say. Um, so this next question, it kind of has a caveat on it in the book and it has the caveat on it here because a lot of times um, the people I interview don't necessarily have a normal occupation, but the question is, and you chose this one, what advice would you give about, give someone about to enter your occupation and, and uh, you, you've got to figure out which occupation you want to talk about, whether you want to talk about mixed professional mixed martial artist or, or farrier or horse trainer or saddle yeah. maker okay. or all yeah, of the above. Yeah, I'll go with, uh, we'll start with mixed martial artists. Uh, yeah, what I say to, I mean, this is just for people in whatever they do anyway, but especially in, uh, in mixed martial arts is um, uh, just your main focus should be on, on today, like getting 1% better today. Can you, you know, pick out one thing to get 1% better at today and over the course of a year, and then, you know, five years and a career, that's going to really add up. Um, and I think, obviously, I love to set goals and set, set like medium and long-term goals as well. But I think sometimes if people, uh, you know, young guys would come and say, well, I want to get in the UFC. And I'd say, okay, what are you going to do right now? What are you going to do today that's going to get you a little bit closer, you know, 1% closer? Um and the people that I saw do that, um, whether they were doing it consciously or not, they have improved greatly because all that, that they just focus on one little thing a day, one little thing a day. And if, you know, 
you, it's not like everything improves. You, one one thing might not be as sharp as it was yesterday, but if we're still moving in the right direction, we're still moving forward, we're still moving forward, then they're eventually going to get there, you know? So to people in mixed martial arts, but it goes into any any field, like any pursuit that they want is aim to get 1% better today than you were yesterday. And the long-term goal is going to take care of itself. Um, and uh, and as far as with horses, like horse training and uh, anything to do with horses really, but uh, especially horse training. Uh, one of my good friends and mentors, uh, Paulie Daniel, who I think you know, yeah, uh, he, he once said to me, and it's like it just resonated with me so much that I think it all the time. And if I feel it's kind of like the uh, Alchemist book, if I feel I'm getting a bit off track or if I'm uh, – if I'm working a horse and something's not working out, the first thing, you know, I, I think about what I've been doing. And he said to me, I was doing something once. I was throwing a, uh, I was, we were breaking in a, in a horse and I was throwing a lead rope over this horse to the, to desensitize it. But it got to this point where he was obviously desensitized. And he goes, Hey, are you doing that for yourself or are you doing that for the horse? Cause the horse is fine with it. And I think at this point, you're doing it to, to make sure you're comfortable, yeah, and uh, now about and which is fine, but then you start pushing into the then you start keep doing it to try and make yourself more comfortable, and you push it to a point where it just gives the horse the shits, and then if you're if you're not self reflective enough to recognise that, then you see that as a horse problem. You go, oh, the horse has got an issue here, and really what it was is. You didn't. I failed to recognize the point where I stopped doing what I was doing for the horse, and I started doing it for me. Um, so now, yeah, with my horse training, I basically just what I'm doing. I'm trying to do it for the horse, and if the horse tells me it's ready for the next step, I go to the next step. And if it if it doesn't tell me it's ready, uh, then I don't go to the next step. You know, and uh, yeah. So I just that's. I think that was really sound advice, and that would be advice I'd give to anyone because. They, whether they're a world-class trainer or uh, someone who's new to horses, I think you can always ask yourself that question, like, is what I'm doing working to my horse's benefit? And uh, as horsemen, I guess that's what we're all trying to do. So it's a good good mindset to have, I think. Great mindset. You know, uh, Martin Black, who's a very, very, very good horseman, he talks about, um, you know, sometimes you – can bring the human up to the level of the horse, but sometimes you've got to take the horse down to the level of the human. And, and, and the part you're talking about here is bringing the human up to the level of the horse. Yeah. 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 So that can be hard. And uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's like anything, like it's similar to the how we were talking about that being uncomfortable. It's like once you find, if you can experience, if you can get there and experience it, you can, you can and feel what it's like to have that, connection you can try and find it again and again and again um and obviously with some horses it's easier to find that that point of connection and get your energies sort of in sync to where you can where you're working towards a common goal but if a person can find it with one horse it might be a little easier they can try and replicate that with other horses and and find that spot where they're in sync and for in for me when a horse even a horse that is a little bit more rank once they work out that you're trying for them 
like you're trying to meet them on their level, I think they give a lot more of themselves to you. Even the ra- the the wilder ones, like uh, I've worked with some like Brumbies in Australia, which is like the Australian wild horse for those that don't know, and uh, and some Mustangs here. And I found them to be really a lot like that. They were super like operated in that self-preservation mode until they really believed that you were doing something for them, not not at them, but yep. like for them. And then they just gave themselves to you, you know. So I think that's a good uh, good place to be trying to get to with any of our horses, I think. Yeah, great advice. Hey, uh, <clears throat> you might have covered this before, but it might have been your uh, Las Vegas thing, but your next question was, do you have any regrets you'd be willing to share with the world? Yeah, so that is a good question. I guess it kind of what does relate a bit to the to the uh, Las, Vegas, um, Las Vegas thing, but I, I guess because I've already covered that um, a bit more broadly, like, I was so driven and and this isn't I wouldn't class it as a regret but it's definitely worth uh, talking about is uh I was so so driven um in my early 20s uh to be a, a world class martial artist I mean and like I said earlier I didn't necessarily have that long term goal of I wanted to be in the UFC but I wanted to be as good as I could be and I was just pushing every day pushing every day to be that good that I, I guess I wasn't present in, uh, in, in moments and in relationships with my family, you know, like my parents who I've always had a great relationship with them, but I, I wasn't present. I mean, I would be at a dinner or at a birthday and my mind would be on tomorrow, like uh, tomorrow's training session. You know, who am I sparring? What have I got to do? What's my next meal? Uh, All that stuff surrounding like fight, you know, the fight game in general. But yeah, I wasn't, um, for so many of those years, I wasn't present. So for me now in what I do, and I'm still trying to be world-class at the things I do, but I'm trying to find that balance of being world-class or working towards being world-class and and also being present. And uh, that's really important to me. So, um, like I said, it's not really a regret because I don't go back and like dwell on it. It's just more like a lesson, you know. But uh, it's definitely something that I think about a lot now. Is just trying to be more present um, in my relationships and dealings with everyone, and or at the same time finding that balance to also push ahead in my pursuits that I'm trying to be good at. Yeah. Yeah, that whole being present thing, that's the secret to life right there. <laughs> yep, that's it. Hey, yeah. It's man, it's the it's the magic right there. If you can be if you can be in the moment, uh that's where all the great stuff happens. That's all we have. <laughs> you know, if you want to get really philosophical, because yeah, as they say, yesterday's gone and tomorrow's not here yet. So Yeah, you were talking before about um when you were in the UFC and you're pro, you know, you're focused on what was going on now, not, you know, not in the end. And, uh, one of the most spiritual of the ancient Hindu practices is something called karma yoga and mm-hmm. karma yoga is focusing on the process, uh, focusing on a task with no thought of the outcome. Yeah. 
So it's just about yeah. being present right yeah. there. Or yeah. as a good friend of ours from New Zealand who was a previous podcast guest, she's an equestrian mindset coach. Yeah. And she said, if you're doing the work while focused on the outcome, you're not really doing the work. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And it's uh, Bruce Lee said it too, and I, uh, I, I think of that all the time, and that changed my mindset in fighting because when I started, you know, I wasn't doing it for like accolades or whatever, but I was obviously, you know, if you're in a, in a fight or a competition, you want to win. And, uh, and I read somewhere him saying, it's essentially what your friend just said there was, he said, don't think in absolutes like win or lose. Um, you know, if you're thinking, I, I don't want to lose or I want to win, that's an absolute and it's not helping you right now. It's not helping you in this moment. So instead of thinking in absolutes, like what in this second gets you closer to where you want to be, you know? And uh, if you do that second after second after second, then you're going to win. You're probably going to win, you know, if you're uh, if you're doing the the right thing you need to get closer to the outcome you want, you, you're you going to win. Um, but so many people, if they they – you know, and especially people that talk to me about nerves before fights or competitions, they talk. They talk in terms of absolutes. You know, they're like, "Well, what if I lose?" Or you know, "I don't want to. I don't want to lose, or I don't want to whatever." But if they forget the absolute outcome and think about the second to second action, um, you know, thinking in terms of actions instead of emotions, because emotions don't get you anywhere. Emotions don't have any progress, you know, as far as uh, in a in a competition, you know. Um, I'm, I, I'm all about like being in touch with your emotions, but if you're in a five-minute round of a fight, there's no time uh, to be thinking about if you're going to be upset if you lose, you know. You've got to think about the right now. What do you need to do in this second to get to the next second? And that kind of goes back to that karma yoga thing of uh, being in, being completely in the moment. Yeah. You know, just listen to you talk. Um, I talked about that uh, men's emotional resilience retreat I went to last year, and a large body of the work at that weekend was, a was following a book called um, – King, warrior, lover, magician. And it talks mm -hmm. about the four archetypes. And each one of those archetypes, you know, like the king, he's, he's the doer of deeds for the good of everyone. The, the warrior is the warrior. Um, the magician is the, the thinker. And the lover is, brings the emotions to it. But every one of them has a, sh has a shadow side. So if you get it wrong, you get, you know, something else. Mm -hmm. And the shadow side of the king is the prince. So the king does the, king does things for the good of everybody and the prince does things for external validation like mm -hmm. what somebody thinks of me and it sounds you know i would imagine a lot of people who get into maybe the mixed martial arts or anything at the level you got into where you are going to be you know like you're fighting las vegas and you're on tv or whatever there's a level of that that um you know external validation that you're doing it for and it seems yeah. like you just seem like that was the last thing on your mind. You, you, just this whole conversation I've had with you, it just sounds like you were only challenging yourself. It was all about challenging yourself and not really giving two hoots what anybody else thought of you. Yeah, it was strangely like it was like that. And uh, 
Like sometimes I think, you know, people ask me about it. I, I have real deep chats with people about it if they, if they talk to me about it because they want to ask about my career and, and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, when, when you dig deeper and dig deeper and peel the, layer, peel the layers off, like sometimes I feel at the level I was competing at, like it was almost, almost to my detriment, but ultimately like I'm happy about that because, um, you know, I always say like who you are is more important than what you are, you know, and uh, I think though that the fact that I really didn't care, I, it's not that I didn't care. I mean, I wanted to win, you know, and I uh, I was undefeated outside of the UFC. I had some losses in the UFC against like top level guys, but um, but it's not. So it's not that I didn't care. Like I wasn't trying to win, but the fact that there was no, there was pretty much no like look searching for external validation. Um, I mean, I knew my parents were gonna. Lo- I always say to people like, the people that loved you before are gonna love you after. And the people that didn't go, didn't like you before, they're probably not going to like you after anyway either. <laughs> so, you know, uh, don't think that it's really going to change, you know. And so maybe if I was trying to impress someone, I might have found another level uh, in fights, you know, but that's not what I was there for, you know. And uh, so basically all the questions that I went into that storm looking to answer – I got answered, you know, and so that's where like where the journey kind of ended happily for me is that um, it's like I achieved everything I went in there to achieve, which was nothing externally like validation wise. It was all, you know, finding out what I was made of. And uh, yeah, so that, yeah, that I'm, uh, that is something I'm really happy about. But yeah, as like what I mentioned just before about who, who, who you are is more important than what you are. I think uh, sometimes people get caught up on being uh, whatever you know. I've got to be a, uh, I've got to be a fighter or look like a fighter. Or I've got to be a cowboy, you know, and I've got to dress a certain way, or I've got to be a cowboy, you know, to be a this. And I'm like, man, you could, you can dress me in whatever you want and put me in whatever situation, and I'll do what, I'll. I'll do what I got to do if I'm good at it. You know, there's plenty of situations I might not be good at that. But, you know, you could dress me in whatever you want and put me on a horse or you could dress me in whatever you want and put me in a cage and I'm going to be fine. I don't need to wear the brand name stuff, you know. And uh, I didn't even have any uh, MMA gear until I was in the UFC and sponsored to have it. Uh, I used to buy shorts from Lowe's, you know, which is like Walmart over here. and like hibiscus like uh board shorts that you go to the beach in and i just cut a big slit up the side so that i could kick a bit higher and they cost me like nine dollars and that was what i would fight in you know so yeah yeah after i was on that podcast with you and todd i um i found a podcast you were on and i remember hearing that story in there that was that was uh pretty funny uh something else i got out of that podcast that you were on that really kind of stuck with me they were asking you your pre-fight ritual and i think for most people there would be and i'm not talking about most people that well probably even most people who are in the ufc but for most people the the thought of going into a combat situation like that you would either have 
you know, like fear or anger or aggression or whatever. And I remember you saying, I just felt happy. I just felt like, I th- was, was, it, was the word happy or ex- it wasn't excited. Yeah. It was like ca- a calm. It was like, yeah, this is yeah. going to be fun. That's, that's more what it came across like. Is that how it was? Yeah, probably. I can't remember, but it probably was. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why I've always had that. Uh, like that is a, that is a, that is a rare skill right there, my friend. Yeah. I'm not sure where that, I don't know if that's a natural thing or whatever, but, um, I've just always had that, like, uh, if someone, I mean, I, I don't really think in these terms these days, uh, cause I'm older and more mature, but like if someone, if I was somewhere and someone said, man, there's 10 guys coming to kick this door in, I'd be like, okay. <laughs> like it just never really, I don't know. It just never really, uh, worry me. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, it was, it was strange. Yeah. And, and same, uh, with, like rodeoing you know and uh uh like i I was riding bulls i think the last time i rode a bull was in 2018 but and that's also why i stopped though because i didn't get that like that i wasn't getting worried i mean uh and so i was like this is not good (laughs) because i also didn't have the thing with fighting is like uh, i've put in the hours and uh, i have the confidence that i can I can handle it, you know, but, uh, I was not, not practicing bull riding anymore or anything. And I, uh, so I knew that was not going to end well if I just kept, but I just didn't have the worry of getting on anything. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. And it's not, I don't think it's a, uh, it's not like there's no fear. It's not like there's a glitch in the matrix and there's no fear. It's more like this calm, like, I'm going to be okay. Like I just have this belief that I, everything is, if I can control myself and my uh, energy and my emotions, then I can control the situation. Right. And I think that's what it is. Yeah. Have you ever seen the movie um, uh, Free Solo? No, I haven't, but I've, People have told me that I need to watch it. It's an amazing movie, but, uh, you know, if you guys at home aren't aware of what it is, it's about a guy named Alex Honnold. He's probably the best rock climber in the world, and he free solos El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. And El Capitan's about 3,000 foot straight up of sheer granite, and he does it with no – because when you rock climb, rock climbers – my son's a rock climber, and it scared the hell out of my wife for a while until she realized how – safety conscious they actually are you know you've, you've always got fail safes you know you're roped in and all sorts of stuff um but alex honnell was the first guy to free solo el capitan so there's there is three thousand feet of no mistakes not a slight mistake and they did in the movie they did a, a like an fmri on him and they said his amygdala is you know so your amygdala is your body's smoke detector <laughs> your fire mm-hmm. alarm sort of thing and his is abnormal and when I saw that, I'm like, oh, well, I wonder if he's done that from building it up over time or he's maybe a little abnormal. But I read something the other day that when they did the fMRI, so this guy, you know, basically has no fear. When mm. they did the fMRI, when they were going to slide him in the tube, he had a panic attack about going into the tube. Yeah. So like yeah. Alex Heinle having a panic attack about going in a little tube, but he can climb a 3,000 foot sheer rock face and... But the thing about, you know, the thing about that rock climbing, there was a guy named Dean Potter 
who died a few years ago in a wingsuiting accident in Yosemite. And he was one of the best uh, rock climbers in the world as well. Mm-hmm. But I remember reading a book and the book was about, I think it was about the flow state. You ever read uh, The Rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler? No. It's, about, it's all about the flow state. Okay. But, and they ask um, Dean Potter about, you know, rock climbing and stuff. And he says, I don't particularly like rocks. Like it's not, I don't particularly like rock climbing. Yeah. He likes rock climbing because of the state he has to go in to do it. Like there's only you and the rock. You have to be present. I mean, I've done a little bit of rock climbing with my son and, and there's just you and the rock. And what's funny for me is I'm not real crazy about heights, but you'll climb up something that's 80, 90 foot high. And it's not till you get to the top and you, you know, you look over the edge and you go, holy cow, but you don't, you, you're not thinking about that on the way yeah. up. You're only thinking about where you're placing your hand and where you're placing your feet and, yeah, and I think that's kind of, you know, kind of what you had to do with martial arts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like the way you put it there is you're not thinking about the whole the whole thing. You're like thinking about where you, where you put your hand, where you put your feet, all that is exactly – that's exactly what a fight is. I mean, it's like uh, – um, what does Joe Rogan calls it? Uh, calls fight, you know, professional fighting at that level. Um uh, human chess with dire physical consequences, and that's kind of what it, that's kind of what it's like. It's like you're literally playing chess. Like you're you you make a move, and then you're waiting on your opponent to make a counter move, and you're doing this the whole time. I mean, like fractions of seconds and fractions of millimeters, and you're just having this exchange the whole time, totally engaged in the moment. And uh, and it, if you zig when you should have zagged. And move your chess piece wrong, it's it can go real bad. So it's and same same obviously same as rock climbing, especially for that guy in the uh, you know that example. And I think that is uh, yeah, I think it just takes you to another another place mentally that uh, other things just don't get you, you know. And uh, the good thing is, I think then it allows you to find the state of peace in normal life that maybe some people that haven't been able to experience that. I mean, if you, if you can train yourself to move your chess pieces that, that, you know, quickly and uh, accurately to keep you alive, climbing 3000 feet free solo or fighting in a cage against some of the best guys in the world, um, then everyday life, things aren't so scary anymore. So I think that's probably what a lot of, those people are chasing, you know, that do those tasks. Yeah. You know, while you were talking there, Brandon, I was thinking about, you know, you're talking about the mindset of the, of the fighting and, and, you know, it's like human chess with dire physical consequences. There's, there's that part of it, but you mentioned before when you're at a, like a family function about, you know, what are you going to eat is as a, as a UFC fighter is your diet, uh, I wouldn't say restricted, but like, do you have to have a lot of discipline with your eating? Yeah, yeah, you definitely do. Um, and some guys struggle with that. I think all fight, all professional fighters would admit uh, that the weight cut is way worse than the fight. Uh, I mean, m- I, most guys love the fight, love the actual that, and it's just the lead up and the weight cut and and that um, that is really annoying. 
Um, and some guys, I mean, everyone's different. Some guys blow out after their fight and put on weight and have some time off and then have to work really hard to get it back down. And I was always pretty disciplined to keep my weight. I mean, it's not low. We're not doing like what jockeys have to do, to, you know, but maybe for a couple of days before the weigh-in, but we're not. They're riding multiple times a week as a jockey. We're doing it, you know, we're fighting maybe three times a year. But, uh, yeah, the ca- the uh, the diet can be pretty restrictive. And um, and so for me that was uh, – because I was self-managed as well. Like some guys will have a manager and uh, – you know they're pretty they're pretty well handled <laughs> you know they they turn up to the gym and they put in their work and there's someone kind of doing all that whereas i was um self-managed so i was like the point of contact for them to negotiate stuff with me and all that sort of thing and sponsors to negotiate with um so that plus you know having having to manage my own diet and then uh do all that other stuff was just probably um, I probably should have outsourced it, you know, uh, just to take some of the burden off. But yeah, to answer your question, yeah, the diet uh, can be pretty restrictive and it can suck a bit. How do you how do you um, like restrict your weight but get enough energy to do what you do? That's got to be a, a juggling act, is it? Yeah, it is. And there's some some guys obviously in the sport now uh that are very good at managing that so i was lucky in my uh last fight i worked with a guy george lockhart who um is like probably the best guy in the world at it and he were he recently worked with tyson fury who fought the other night for the world heavyweight boxing championship he works with conor mcgregor he's uh he's just a real he's got it down to a fine science of how to get you just enough and en- you know get you enough energy to get all your training in but you're still at a deficit that you're losing the weight um but that is that is really tough um basically what i would do is uh just time the eating around my training and uh you know try and get in some good natural carbohydrates right after i train pretty hard to replen- replenish that glycogen but uh you know we were all Come leading up, if you had to lose weight for a fight, you're at a cal- calorie deficit, which means you're expending more calories than you're taking in, and uh, that can be pretty hard. And then a lot of it is just gutting it out. Is like it's just that mental uh, fortitude of um, of just knowing you have to do it and doing it. Uh, it's tough for weeks and weeks and weeks leading up to the fight like it's just it it does get tough but for me the weight cut right before the fight i'm it never bothered me too much the process some guys really hate it that's where you so there's basically there's losing weight where you're actually losing body weight and then there's um what the weight cut where we basically pull water out of our body um whether it's in a sauna or in a hot bath um and you pull that water out as close to the weigh-in as you can, and then you make weight, and then you start to put it back on. So it's kind of like a false. It's like a false reading because yep. um, a guy could he could weigh in at uh, 155 pounds and then be 175 by the time he fights. Oh wow! Um, what weight yes. did you fight at? I fought at one, uh, both 155, which is lightweight, and uh, 170, which is welterweight. I fought at both of those. Yeah. 
And so did you have to put weight on to be a welterweight or did you, you know, which one of them do you naturally sit in? So I walk around at about 180. Uh, I, I, back then I was walking around at probably between 182 and 184. Okay. So I was actually heavier back then um, just because I just I was training all the time. I probably had a little, little bit more muscle on me. Um, and uh, so basically I would nothing would change whether I fought at 55 or 70, um, which was what, what was kind of crazy. So if I fought at 170, I would just be smaller uh, than my opponents, basically always. Um, but I would never got outstrengthed. I was just a small welterweight. Um, and cutting to 155 was more, you know, like uh, I looked more even with my opponents as far as like weight and size went. But it was just a tough cut. Like I'm pretty, uh, 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 pretty muscle dense. Some guys, it's like they got light bones or something where they they look muscular, but they make the weight easy. They're light. They kind of have a lighter. And some people are just dense. Like the muscles are dense, their bones are dense, and it. And so, fifty five was a tough cut for me. But uh, yeah, like I, I fought once. I weighed in one day at one fifty five, and. Uh, Fought the next day, and I was I was like 182 pounds when I when I walked Holy in the cage. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's a it can be a crazy manipulation of weight. Uh, getting you know, and that's that's got a lot of uh, controversy and stuff these days now because you know there's been some people that you know get a bit sick doing it. Uh, and also now there's more and more evidence, you know, people talk about CTE, like brain trauma, traumatic brain injuries from getting punched. And, you know, they say if you're really dehydrated, there's not as much fluid around your brain and uh, therefore there's a greater risk of um, brain trauma and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, that's all, you know, that they throw that around these days too. But back in the day it was just, back in my day, it was like the Wild West and you just did what you had to do. But yeah well so let's um let's see if you can give us some uh like parallels between you know horses and mixed martial arts like yeah. you know I, I i personally just listening to you i'm i'm like ping 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 like yeah that's the same that's the same that's the same that's the same you you would find that because you've done both yeah i definitely found it a lot um, I mean, on every on every level of uh, of of it, I find similarities. So it's really like how how deep you want to go with the with the similarities. One thing that I uh, I mean, I, yeah, I can only speak from personal experience, but um, you know, for me, the the beginning of the journey um, in both is kind of. Uh, a journey outwards like whether it's in mixed martial arts or with horses it's like you're looking obviously you're learning so you're having to look out out at other people and seek their advice and their uh you know approval to a degree um to say yeah you're doing the right thing you're on the right path you're doing well and then competitively i think at the start even if you don't you know, like I, I like to think I wasn't really seeking out outside approval in my martial arts journey. Uh, 
to a degree I was because I was still seeking the approval of those coaches that I was like looking to, to to see that am I doing the right thing so that's why I say like at the start it's a journey outwards like you're looking for approval out, outside of yourself and then and then it reaches a point in both like martial arts and horsemanship where it becomes a journey inwards where like the only answers you can get now is from you uh, or in the case with horses from the horse um, and I think that's something I've I've learned to do more with with horses uh, is um, like let them give me the answer of, as to whether what I'm doing is working or not rather than trying to watch more instructionals or uh, read more and I'm all I'm all for um, that as well I think we've got to always be seeking uh, mentors and, and trying to learn but I think sometimes people do that to the detriment of just asking the horse uh, is what I'm doing working you know because it, they always give us the answer and sometimes we don't worry about what they're trying to tell us and we go ask someone else and <laughs> so yeah that's uh, and, and similarly in martial arts like uh uh, especially as we were saying, it's like human chess with dire consequences. Well, the dire consequences tell you the answers is maybe if what you're doing is working or not. And sometimes you want to ask the coach all the time and you you forget the fact that you're getting punched in the face a lot. So maybe what you're thinking is working is not working. Um, so, yeah, I think those are two real great parallels is like um, – you know, getting your answers from there instead of always asking outwards, you know. Yeah, sounds like, um, yeah, sounds like that just listened to you the whole time. It sounds like, yeah, that once you get to a certain point, it's all about, it's all about the inward journey. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's awesome, Brandon. Well, hey, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. How do, uh, how do people find out more about, about, um, you? Well, yeah, well, uh, I, uh, I'm pretty active on Instagram, for, uh, so I've got like a personal account uh, if people want to keep up with what I'm doing there, which is uh, relentless underscore badger underscore UFC. Uh, hey, I yeah. was going to ask you about that. So that was your nickname yeah. in the UFC, wasn't it? Relentless badger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And where did you get that? So, so there's this funny uh, clip that was like doing the rounds on YouTube years ago of... Uh, the honey badger. Oh, yeah, in yeah, the honey badger. Yeah. yeah. He's so a badass. It's like the world's most fearless animal. And because uh, I was uh, in the, when I was in the Ultimate Fighter, I, I was in the welterweight division and I was like, by a long shot, the, the shortest and smallest guy there. But um, I just, yeah, I didn't take like a backward step from anyone or whatever. And someone said that I was like that honey badger because those honey badgers like fight lions. <laughs> And uh, and like yeah, like all good nicknames, I didn't like it, so uh, it's stuck. <laughs> and now I've embraced it. I just embrace it for uh, for yeah, the compliment that it is. You know that yeah, I guess I'm a fearless little creature of Africa. <laughs> okay, uh, relentless underscore badger underscore UFC. That's your Instagram. Yeah, that that's my personal Instagram, and then I have a business one which I'm. Uh, a lot more active on it's got like my uh my saddle making and my uh cult starting and and that sort of thing and uh 
that is O'Reilly underscore Colt and Saddle. And it's just all one word, like O'Reilly underscore Colt and Saddle. And uh, yeah, find it and have a look. And yeah, you kind of, between the two of those, you keep up with my daily activities as well, <laughs> where I'm most active on there. So yeah, and feel free to like, you know, shoot me messages or comment or whatever. I like interacting with folks, so it's all good. And you can go there to get your Maya Angelou quotes too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do love a good quote. You know, I've got a got one I've got one tattooed on here. And uh that one is uh Latin and for he conquers who conquers himself. Oh. Yeah, so I do love a good quote. <laughs> You'll get plenty on my Instagram, tune in. That's a good quote. He what what was it? He conquers who, who conquers, conquers himself. himself. That that would sum up uh, probably everything you've been saying on the podcast. So, hey, thanks for joining us. It's uh, been great chatting with you. Yeah, no worries, Warwick. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure and I appreciate you having me on and uh, I appreciate all those that are going to listen to this and enjoy it. So thank you. Okay, thanks guys for listening. We'll join you next time on another episode of The Journey On Podcast. Thanks for listening to The Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickshiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.